folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, fair politics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the secret history of the Anglo-American establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's B-I-S-G-B-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book, Mother Works at the Farm's official store, which is at the farm podcast.store. That is the farm podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guest content. And that's on just the lowest tier. The all-access Patreons have uh, a lot more to look forward to. You get insights into my ongoing and current investigations, dispatches from all the crazy places that I go and visit and document, uh, the periodic State of the Union addresses where I give you the lowdown of my thoughts on ongoing geopolitical events and all kinds of other goodies, like uh, those traits or the... Um, Betty Ford Aquino papers that I recently got in Wisconsin and put up for the uh, All Access Patreons. So yeah, there's a lot of treats there, guys. Definitely give that a consideration. Um, just today, I was doing another dispatches, this time from Marietta. Um, fittingly, Keith, uh, one of the guests for today's show, actually called me in the middle of it. So uh, occasionally you get some kind of crazy synchronicities with all this stuff as well, which makes it all the more interesting. Especially since I think a later one of those I was doing when Queen Elizabeth was uh, literally dying. So another kind of fascinating thing, given the topic I was discussing at the time. The journey of the soul after uh, death and that kind of stuff. So, but I've rambled enough. Just check out the Patreon, guys. There is a lot of good stuff there. And it's very pertinent to a lot of the things that we'll be discussing, especially the Society of Cincinnati series, which was very much a companion piece to this one and uh, related to the stuff I was looking at in Marietta today. Anyway, I've got two guests joining me for this outing, both of them repeaters. <clears throat> the first one is no stranger to regular listeners at the farm. He's a frequent guest here, as well as being my research partner and the author of the forthcoming work that will be the definitive account of the World Anti-Communist League. Folks, I give you guys the great Keith Allen Dennis. He is also a fabulous musician and responsible for the farm's theme, in case you guys haven't realized that by now. So you may also want to check him out on Bandcamp, too. Anyway, Keith, thank you so much for joining by today, sir. Thanks for uh, cool, bro. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have you on, sir. All right, and the other guest is also Repeater. He is the host of Programmed Chill Podcast, which explores business, crime, politics, and esoterica. Folks, I give you guys the host, the great Jimmy Fallon Gong. Jimmy, thank you so much for driving by again today, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to be back on the farm. We're always happy to have you back on, man. <clears throat> All right, we have got a great show in store for you guys. Actually, this is the final installment in the competing notions of America's past series. Over the decades and literally centuries, a variety of groups have tried to craft their own founding ethos for this nation. The Masons and the Mormons have done a lot in this regard. <clears throat> in more recent years, white nationalists, even some black ones, have gotten in on the act. For the first installment, we focused on contemporary era efforts by the likes of folks like Hakeem Bey and that whole milieu around him. 
with the second installment. The great Paul Stewart took us through the Buell Papers, one of the most remarkable misogynic forgeries of all time. And our most recent outing, Keith and Jimmy gave us a rundown of further Masonic developments in the 19th century hoax uh, uh, arena, plus Mormonism's own unique contributions to America's origin stories, especially when it comes to those mounds. Today, Keith and Jimmy are back with me to help bring this thing to a close. We're going to consider some recent developments and ongoing struggle over America's past. <clears throat> First, I'm going to consider Mormonism's inroads to ufology and what this may mean for it going forward. Then Jimmy is going to give us some further Mormon goodies with his insights into the world of farms. And don't worry, you guys will be finding out what that is in just a little while. And Keith is going to first tie up some threads from the 19th century for us here at the onset, explaining some of the other treasures that he experienced during his profane youth. And then we're going to get into one of the most controversial alternative uh, alternative historians of the late 90s and beyond. That would be Tracy Twyman, who is presently being scrubbed off the face of the internet. Indeed, we may discuss her ongoing legacy as it relates to that as well. Her, uh, her links all point right now to the LDS Church website, might I add. <laughs> Oh uh, yes, I rolled you. I rolled you with that. That was so funny, man. Come on, good. That is. Uh, it's <laughs> going to be quite a show, guys. So, um, yeah, there's definitely going to be a lot of controversial stuff in here as well. So, um, yeah, if different parties were not already looking to kill me, they probably will be after we finish this episode. So, look out for the Danites. <laughs> let us start the show. I know before we get into recent developments in full, you wanted to give the kids at home a quick rundown of some of these Fox sites that you explored in your younger days. So let's hear about it now, buddy. Yeah, I, I want to say that, uh, you know, a, a lot of my contributions to the content on the farm are things that I spend a lot of time uh, researching and writing up and making copious notes about and everything. And, and uh, the contributions to this series, and I will put the Hakeem Bay episode that we did in this category, in this one sense. Um, anyway, this, this is uh, 
some of my own personal experience. You called it my profane youth. Absolutely. That is guilty. Yes. Um, so I, I, you know, I've got some things to contribute that are really more my own experience. And I apologize. I'm literally in traffic right now on a Bluetooth. So if you hear, <laughs> if you hear anything, you know, that, that that's what it is. Um, so in, in the one, in, in the episode that Hearing we did about, noise, it's just me and the boys, brother. Right. I just, I got to throw in that random big old, reference for you guys. I, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm good with that. Um, <laughs> but we, we, we talked about, uh, what uh, I, I, I want to say it was the Paul Stewart guy. Uh, he called them artifacts. I don't know if he invented the term, but it's a really good one. And I, you know, because of the Hakeem Bay influence and because that that guy, you know, for all of the, the many, many faults and just cursed, awful stuff about Hakeem Bay and all that stuff that we went into before, you know, if you're young, like I was, you don't really know all that. You're just kind of naively coming into this stuff, which, you know, I've, even to this day, I'm just like terminally naive and it's just, it's awful, but I, some interesting things have happened because of it. But anyway, uh, I, I used to really be into uh, this notion of Columbus being last, that um, the history of the United States or the Americas, the New World, did not have to be uh, so bloody and brutal and genocidal, and that it could have, you know, it could have been a whole different world, and it still could be one day, you know, and uh, and it just sounds so cringe just saying it out loud. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna die on the altar of cringe in this in this episode, so I may as well just you know bear my uh, bear my myself for the knife here um but but man well, let me get closer to the point here i went and saw the the heavener runestone in oklahoma when i was uh, a young man i i went and saw um these palatki ruins uh near sedona that somebody had said on the internet of course in the early days that uh you know that this this uh pictograph inscription native american inscription from the Mogollon period was in fact uh, the Sanskrit character glyph for the Ohm, you know? So some, somebody out there really, really wanted there to be some kind of Hindu presence in the ancient Southwest for whatever reason. And just like we could point up to the clouds and say, well, I think that's a bunny. Well, no, I think that's the unicorn. You know, uh, you could do that with these, these old inscriptions uh, if you didn't know, what you were looking at, which some of these people clearly didn't. Um, the Los Lunas Decalogue stone that purports to be a, uh, you know, the, an inscription of the Ten Commandments in New Mexico. Uh, I went and saw that. And uh, I think we talked about that at, at, at more length, the Los Lunas stone. We talked about that at some length in the previous episode. So I won't really recapitulate that too much. but. You know, it was it was my imagination uh, that led me into this stuff and, and a yearning for, uh, again, a personal struggle over America's past and what it means. And, uh, you know, the, the, the old saying, I think it was George Orwell, whoever controls the past controls the future or something like that. And it was kind of my little 
cringy way of trying to grasp onto the wheel and change the past and therefore the future. And I, I couldn't have even articulated it in those terms. It was just cool uh, on a certain level. And um, I'll go back to what I was talking about, about the, the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone. And let's just let's just fire up the cringe right now. The first time I ever saw any real like like actual Native American rock art petroglyphs was when I went and saw the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone. And if you ever look up a picture of that, you can find them on the Internet and you can see this stone that's, you know, what about a, about a 30, 40 degree angle that it's at. It's on its side, sort of at an angle. And you can see these uh, Hebrew, allegedly Hebrew or Phoenician, whatever characters that are on it. But all around it, you can see these actual, real, authentic Native American, uh, you know, uh, petroglyphs all around it. And you can tell by looking at them, they just look older. Spring equinox, uh, 2000. I'm out west for the first time. I'm out in the desert for the first time. I live in Missouri, and I, you know, I'm coming out west to see some family or whatever. And uh, and I, I was into all this stuff, so I got a permit to go on the the, the Laguna Pueblo uh, Native American lands because you had to get a permit to do that. And I went out and I found the place all by myself, uh, which was crazy because everything was covered in snow and there was no tracks anywhere. But somehow I did it and I found it and I, I snapped a picture because uh, I, you know, they had these old selfie modes on actual film carrying cameras back then. But the point is, the actual Native American uh, petroglyphs are right there next to the stone. And I had pretty much just ignored all that because I was more interested in the notion that some ancient Hebrew people were actually here once upon a time you know, carving the Ten Commandments at random into some, you know, very random place in the desert southwest, far from any body of water or, or whatever. And it's pretty cringy because, like, well, what about the stuff that's really here? Uh, are you here to see that? No, you're here chasing this dumb fantasy because, you know, for whatever little cringy early 20s uh, reason that you have, right? And... Uh, when I moved to the Southwest uh, a couple of years later, um, you know, I'd seen the Palatki uh, ruins near Sedona, like uh, cliff dwellings. This is where the pictograph is supposedly the home thing. And I had made an appointment at that point to go to this museum in Tucson to see these lead crosses that were from the 20s. They were found in the 1920s near Tucson. They were cast out of lead. And there was a whole story implemented, included a Masonic square and compass cast out of lead, which, you know, should have been everybody's like red blinking clue that this is fake. Um, but, you know, these things get used as fodder for TV programs and the Ancient Aliens channel and America Unearthed and all this kind of stuff to this day. And they will continue. Uh, to be used in that way because it's content fodder. But my point with all that stuff and, and the realization I came to when I saw the Palaki ruins, I had already had an appointment to go to this uh, this museum in Tucson, and I canceled the appointment the following week. I just said, you know what, I'm not going. I'm not going. I don't need to see this. 
And the reason was because you know, these guys really popped my bubble. These park rangers are out here to make sure that the site is not being disturbed. And this idiot, me, shows up saying, hey, you know, there's like a Sanskrit inscription here. I want to see it. And they're like, dude, there's no, no, no. I don't, I, I, you're not the first person that told us this. I assure you, these are the Mogollon people from about seven to 900 years ago that did this. Shut up with your internet trash. And uh, it made me feel sheepish. You know, they were like, you should be here to, to see the actual Native American uh you know, records of, of ancient actual people that were here instead of this, this BS fantasy. So the, let me sum up all this. The existence of these artifacts, these, uh, these fugitive stones or these lead crosses or rune stones and all that stuff, just by their existence has a way of erasing the genius loci, spirit of the place, just by being there. And they are subject to new interpretations from new generations. It's like a fact that's always going to be with us. Um, the, the Los Lunas Decalogue Stone has, I went and saw it years and years ago, as it's now been uh, vandalized and part of the Ten Commandments are from it. Uh, I'm not curious about it, but it's just really interesting how these things, they take on a life of their own. There's a, there's a, this fake thing at the core, but it generates culture of, it's like this battleground through which we can sort of uh, hammer out different competing narratives about what America's past meant and what, you know, therefore what the future holds. And uh, I, I am kind of embarrassed from having been into those things when I was younger, but it's all right. It was just part of the journey so that I can now sit here and say, yeah, it's all bunk. <laughs> I don't know the follow-up to that, but uh, it's just something I wanted to get out there. I, I just thought it was interesting when I was my profane youth, as you called it. Oh, no, that was, <clears throat> that was very well said, Keith. And I mean, certainly, I mean, I think you... Uh definitely kind of uh, summed up how a lot of people sort of come to the, you know, break out of that spell, I guess, of this, um, you know, this fantastic past. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, it is really very yeah. a bit of sorcery, if you will. I mean, it is. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, let me you tell can... you that one of the, the, the famous books about uh, this, this subject, uh, Barry Bell's book, America BC, in the introduction, you know, the book came out around the, the bicentennial. And he was lamenting the, the apparent fact that American children were going to school and learning things and, and they weren't being taught that, in fact, their white ancestors, he didn't say white, but that's what he meant, uh, actually have a past in the new world. It's not just Native Americans, white people, European people, Greeks, uh, I guess, Venetians whatever also settled the United States, what is now the United States way back in the day. So you kids also have a heritage. You're, you're Native American, is what he was saying. And that's the introduction and there's a whole book with, with that, you know, with, that, uh, with those opinions, um, backing up with evidence, supposed evidence. Um, I will say something else about it if I could just keep going real quick. 
just interesting. You know, I got to meet, there was a lady named Gloria Farley, who was credited as like the main person, um, the, the story of what's now called the heaven or runestone, uh, to the broader public. Uh, it was translated, you know, it was, it was looked at by, uh, Viking or Norse scholars and people that were familiar with runic languages and that kind of thing. And it was, uh, you know, there was a debate, of course, just like the Kensington runestone about whether it was authentic or not. But I went, because I lived in Springfield and she lived in Heavener, which is uh, right there kind of on the eastern border between uh, Arkansas and Oklahoma, so true detective country. And, uh, <laughs> And, and so I, I took a road trip and I got to meet the lady. I got her book. I got it's like autographed and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, seeing the Heaven or Runestone in person was really neat. But there were museums around there. There was at least one. I think it was in a little town called Kerr, Oklahoma, maybe, that had all these other like plaster cast renderings of these other uh, things like the Bastos disc and other like artifacts, stone carvings that were supposed to suggest that uh, not just anybody, but Vikings and like Hebrew people had, and Phoenicians, I guess, uh, had been here. And it's like a really small town in Oklahoma. Why is this museum here? You know, and I don't know, but the takeaway for me, like 20 something years later is like, oh crap, man, we were right there down the street from Elohim City. We're in a Christian identity country. Of course, this stuff is out here. And of course, there's some cultural value even in a, like a little small town, it's going to have a museum like this because we're in the native territory of something, you know. And, and of course, these these artifacts, particularly the ones that suggest some kind of Hebrew connection, they're not only useful for uh, entrepreneurial Mormons who want to bolster their case for that whole thing, but also Christian identity adherents can also get some support for their ideology or whatever out of these artifacts. And I guess, I guess I think that's, I think I'm good now. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for letting me get that out. Yeah. And I mean, <clears throat> it's, it's interesting because I mean, that's kind of served as a basis too for this sort of strange underground that I mean does feature a lot of these Christian identity adherents and I mean a lot of fundamentalist Mormons and what have you and um, people that generally promote um, a revisionist view of uh, history in general I mean this is you know certainly the kind of milieu that I mean a person like Michael A. Hoffman could be seen as like an unofficial spokesman for in a sense um, <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, it's definitely fascinating to see how this has developed uh, in modern America's uh, fringe cultures. That is for sure. Uh, Jimmy, was there something that you wanted to add there? Oh no, not necessarily. But I do sympathize a lot with <clears throat> Keith in terms of like having to like weed your way through just copious amounts of bullshit to get to something <laughs> halfway reasonable. Yeah, because I mean, you know, it's like <clears throat> you don't want to totally throw uh, the baby out with the bathwater with some of this stuff. I mean, again, you know, I was, um, as I mentioned at the onset, I mean, I spent a good chunk of today 
wandering around, you know, uh, an old cemetery and some other, um, you know, historic sites of uh, filming mounds and what have you and kind of going into uh, why a bizarre group like the Society of Cincinnati would be so obsessed with um, some of these areas. I mean, there was definitely a reason for this, um, you know, <laughs> doesn't necessarily have to do though with, um, you know, the lost tribes of Israel though, or, you know, giants um, in the mounds or something of that nature. Uh, you know, so anyway, there are, you know, there is a lot of weird stuff about this kind of history that needs to be investigated. But I mean, obviously, there's a lot of nonsense as well, as Keith has just illustrated, that um, sadly has been really badly abused by some very questionable groups um, in the 20th century and beyond. Uh, yeah, that's uh, had a very negative impact on a lot of uh, fringe cultures, and you know, this is something I'll probably get into just here in a little bit. But um, before that, I want to talk a bit about Mormonism, subject that uh, you know we love going over here on the farm, and uh, specifically, I want to get into how Mormonism has been cultivating relationship ethology um, throughout a good. A chunk of the latter part of the 20th century and certainly going into this new century. Uh, but I mean, in some senses, it really is America's first, you know, ancient astronaut theology, if you will. So it's hardly surprising Mormonism and science fiction, uh, as well as other genre fiction, have a long-standing relationship with one another in the first place. So again, we obviously know what a big influence your follower of science fiction has had on ufology and vice versa. So anyway, among the most notable Mormons active in genre fiction are um, Arson Scott Card, the famed sci-fi author behind the Ender's Game series, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. And there's also Stephanie Myers, uh, the creator of the Twilight series. That's the vampire one. <clears throat> uh, Mormon cosmology and science fiction context was even explored in the original Battlestar Galactica series and to a much lesser extent in the more recent one, maybe a bit more though in Caprica, which is uh, quite interesting in its own right as well. Of course, the original uh, Battlestar Galactica was created by Arch Mormon Glenn Larson. Then there was Sun Classics Pictures, a Utah-based production uh, studio largely run by Mormons that specialized in the supernatural and search-up style documentary series during the 70s. Uh, they did definitely a fair amount of uh, ufology-centric stuff as well. In fact, I think they did the first count of Hangar 18. It was a fictional movie version of Hangar 18, so there was that. Uh, more recently, The Expanse briefly touched on the ODS's relationship with the stars. But in recent years, a series of wealthy Mormon families have become significant patrons in ufology proper. <clears throat> so among the first significant Mormon financiers was tech mogul Joe Firmage. Firmage founded his first company at 18. By 28, he was the CEO of U.S. Web Corporation, a company he transformed into a billion-dollar endeavor in less than three years. Firmage hasn't quite had the same Midas touch in the UFO field. For years, he's been a major investor in the closely related zero-point energy bracket, but doesn't have a lot to show for it. 
more recently, former Utah State Congressman Dan Berriot, um, also through his hand in. And uh, on a synchronistic level, I'm actually staying in a Marriott as a recording this. So it's, uh, Do you have the uh, Book of Mormon by the side of the bed? I don't know if I have a copy of Book of Mormon in here or not. There was actually one at the um, the Mayflower in D.C., uh, ironically, which is a really ritzy uh, hotel. And of course, you know, I had to laugh. Uh, scound with that particular copy you just can't uh, that's what they want so um yeah 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 but i don't know if i've got a book of mormon right here but uh it would certainly be fitting if i did it is a marriott after all so it would hardly be used to be every marriott yeah uh but i will check here in a minute we'll have have to see anyway um so yes he threw his head and his not inconsiderable family inheritance into the ring uh, of zero point energy and uh, on that note also i should probably point out that marriott's their storied celebrated mormon dynasty and then firm age actually claims descent uh, for brigham young himself you know second most noteworthy of uh, the entire mormon hierarchy next to joseph smith himself so anyway this goes to show the extent the mormon gentry have really gotten into this starting to see these uh, kinds of families pop up uh so yeah anyway um by far though the biggest uh congestion of mormons in the ufo field is centered around the mysterious skinwalker ranch for years the site received congressional support from uh, former democratic senate majority leader reed who was himself a significant mormon in the senate for many years uh, ownership of the branch was eventually taken over. It was controlled for many years by Robert Bigelow, who was not a Mormon, um, but uh, made a considerable amount of money off of uh, real estate and that type of thing, which is a reoccurring theme with a lot of the families, Mormon families active in the UFO field. Uh, that was very much the case with the guy who took over Skinwalker from Bigelow, and that would be Brendan Fugel another wealthy mormon and uh, one of the biggest real estate moguls in the entire state of utah to boot so fugal has displayed an interest in the strange and the fringe well before his involvement with skinwalker previously he had been the patron and director of the ancient history research foundation which is not to be confused with the foundation for ancient research and mormon studies which we shall address shortly as for the ah RF, it was closely connected with the highly controversial figure of Wayne May for years. And it also reportedly housed the writings of May's mentor in Fox archaeology, the Jewish Nazi Frank Joseph, aka Frank Collins. Yeah. Collins cut his teeth in white supremacy with none other than George Lincoln Rockwell and his National Socialist White People's Party. Von Rockwell's assassination in I think it was 66 or 67, Collins ran afoul of Matt Cool, the group's new leader. It was around this time Collins founded his own National Socialist Party of America, which eventually took on the mantle of the American Nazi Party proper. Collins continued in this capacity until 1979 when pictures surfaced linking Collins to the sexual abuse of minors, a reoccurring theme in these circles, I might add. <clears throat> he was eventually convicted of child molestation in 1979, 
and spent three years in prison after being sentenced to seven. On his release, he began the process of rebranding himself as a New Age pagan author specializing in the lost continent of Atlantis, a favorite trope of uh, the competing notions of America's past. He was greatly aided in these efforts by May during the 1980s onwards and became pretty successful in the field. It was during the next decade that both men's association with the AHRF appears to have begun. This is also around the time Fugel was a director as well, though he claimed to have left the outfit after learning of the involvement of May and Collins. Um, so while Atlantis was a popular topic with the AHRF, giants, hyperdiffusionism, and other such tropes were common staples of the AHRF as well, and nor was it alone in promoting such subjects among Mormons. Indeed, it was pretty much modeled after the Foundation for Ancient Research Studies, more commonly known as FARMS. Though FARMS did receive semi-enforced official endorsement from the LDS proper, unlike the AHRF. And again, that's understandable when you've got a guy like Collins slash Joseph uh, playing such an active role and promoting its uh, peculiar ideology. Um, I've only just recently begun familiarizing myself with Collins' work. I wrote is just absolutely, I just recently finished reading his absolutely batshit crazy book. Um, what was it, Atlantis in Wisconsin or something to that effect. Um, it goes into a lot of the allegations of there being a pyramid uh, that was built by the ancient Atlanteans in Rock Lake, which is near uh, the Lake Mills area. And, um, the southern part of Wisconsin. It's not far from the mounds, actually, at uh, Zalton and, you know, the uh, the Port Ancient Complex. And again, you know, this is a very interesting subject. I've been there. You know, these mounds are quite impressive. They're some of the, uh, the largest that are still left intact in Wisconsin, uh, especially in that particular region. And um, there has been a lot of compelling indications that there is something strange in uh, Rock Mills Lake. A lot of people have remarked upon that well before, um, you know, Collins threw his hat in in the fray. And, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, just this whole sort of region and uh, this particular mythos has been, you know, a battleground. Um, Hakeem Bey and his people have also, you know, tried to claim the whole thing with the Azaltans and to a lesser extent this notion of like a pyramid again, you know, this is, um, <clears throat> it's all kind of unfolding not that far from like Madison, uh, Wisconsin, which was sort of like the, uh, the, the ground zero, or at least the base of operations for like a lot of these different groups. Um, they were kind of spread out all over the state, but I mean, a lot of them had like a presence ongoing in Madison, you know, a lot, especially when it came to the University of Wisconsin there, a lot of them had close ties to it. Um, hey, Recluse. Yes. Uh, wasn't Bertio that guy, wasn't he really into this region as well? Yes, 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 yes. He was, um, you know, leading the groups out there to Devil's Lake, uh, which is not far from Baraboo, that's, you know, like right next to it in Sauk County, uh, which is not far again from like Madison. So, I mean, yeah, that was like another group. And then obviously um, 
August Derleth, I mean, wasn't far from this area either. And Arkham Press, uh, I think that was actually based out of Baraboo or maybe Sauk City proper. But I mean, it was all, you know, kind of like in the Madison, like broader region. Um, there's a couple of counties like Iowa, here are the other ones. So, yeah, I mean, all this stuff is kind of unfolding in a really close um, <clears throat> proximity to like one another. But anyway, yes. I got one, I got one recluse. Can, can I jump in? Sure, go I'm for it. I'm pretty sure that the, the, the Collins guy, <clears throat> I think I read this on Jason Colavito's blog, which is a really good source for, you know, skeptic people that are skeptical of some of the stuff that we were talking about, the artifacts and the epigraphic evidence and all that. Uh, but anyway, I'm pretty sure I read from, he's my source, that, uh, that the Frank Collins guy was actually the inspiration for the main Nazi little Fuhrer guy in the Blues Brothers movie. You ever heard that? Yeah, I believe, yeah, I believe that was actually the case. Um, <clears throat> it wouldn't surprise me because, I mean, he was based uh, out of Chicago uh, for a lot of years and was, you know, fairly well known in the area. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, it was a bit of a running joke, you know, when it came out that he was Jewish in the late 60s. Um, I think it was like his father who had made a big deal about that, like a, he had taken out like a full page ad, you know, like I think in the Chicago Tribune or something. And just kind of like, I'm a Jew and my son's a Nazi and, you know, this kind of thing. Um so, yeah, I mean, it was it would not surprise me at all if he was the basis for the one, you know, kind of a Nazi character in the Blues Brothers movie. I mean, I'm, you know, given the close ties that the Blues Sheep Brothers had to Chicago, I'm sure they had probably heard of Collins at some point. So, yeah, I mean, he was just an absolutely ridiculous figure in so many levels. I mean, he was promoting this whole notion of Atlantis. Uh, in Wisconsin, and again, as I've said before, it's not to say that there's not potentially something really weird about that region and, you know, the tribe potentially behind it. I mean, this is part of the whole East Woodlands thing, which again, you know, there's a lot of interesting beliefs that they had, and, um, how they overlap with some, you know, European esoteric traditions where there really is a strong basis there. Um, you know, again, could be used for some really interesting speculation, but it's not the kind of stuff that a guy like Collins is going to get into by a long shot. He has no, he would have no clue about any of this stuff. Instead, it takes him, you know, I think all of 10 pages to start going into how it's definitive evidence of white people uh, settling the new world well before Native Americans. And besides his excavations of the lake, I mean, he's also relying on psychics and you know the whole nine yards for a lot of this information so um yeah you know the reliability obviously is um a bit questionable to put it mildly i guess that's the most diplomatic way i could uh, put it <laughs> so yeah you know i mean it's it's just you know, especially in light of some of the stuff we've been talking about, it's just really kind of sickening, um, you know, even reading this crap at this point. Uh, I mean, Collins really does hit on almost like every cliche you could think of when it comes to, you know, the whole uh, Atlantis stuff. 
the notion of white people predating Native Americans and everybody else here in the North American continent. And just, uh, it's, it's terrible. It truly is. And um, yeah, it's, it scrapes the bottom of the barrel as far as this kind of stuff goes, which is saying something because most of it is pretty low down in the barrel to begin with. And um, even then Collins is still just, yeah, he's, uh, he's subpar to put it mildly. So that's Frank Collins slash Joseph. I mean, the kind of ideological inspiration that a uh, place like the AHRF was uh, looking towards. And that kind of gives you an idea of, uh, you know, where a lot of these places were at. So on that note, uh, Jimmy, why don't you tell us a bit about the uh, the group that AHRF appears to have clearly modeled itself after? Well, actually, before we get into farms proper, I know uh, you needed to set the stage a bit before we kind of dug in. So let's go into a bit with these, what you dubbed these Mormon apologists and their approach to uh, history. It uh, apparently involves kind of seven deadly sins, uh, which uh, the great Michael, uh, Dr. Michael uh, Quinn defined no less. So tell us a bit about this subject. Yeah, definitely. And I did want to say, by the way, that I have actually met Orson Scott Card. He's a nice, normal oh, dude. I know people who know Stephanie Myers, <laughs> um, Brian Sanderson too. Uh, so it's a pretty small world, right? So like chances are, if it's a Mormon notable person, I have either met them or know someone who's met them. <laughs> Not that it's that exciting, but okay. So <clears throat> like you were saying, to understand farms, we kind of have to lay the groundwork. And so Mormon apologetics is both unique and it is very much like apologetics that you would find in other churches although i think there's sort of like a more aggressive and sort of like different version when it's mormons because there's like a specific set of unique idea like beliefs that need to be defended quote unquote so that i think they probably spend more time on it than you would see like the average like protestants Christian group, right? So let's see here. <laughs> Apologetics as a field is typically viewed as intellectually dishonest because it sort of presupposes certain articles of faith that are never themselves challenged. And then they are finding often spurious connections to defend those like axiomatic beliefs. And like you said, the Mormon historian, D. Michael Quinn, he lists out <clears throat> seven deadly sins that traditional Mormon history is guilty of. And apologetics is like even more guilty uh, when it comes to this. So the first would be shrinking from analyzing a controversial topic. The second would be concealing a sensitive or contradictory interpretation. Third would be hesitating to follow evidence to revisionist interpretations that run counter to traditional assumptions. The fourth one doesn't super apply to Mormon apologetics, but using evidence to insult religious beliefs. Uh, the fifth one being disappointing scholarly like expectations of academics. Sixth being catering to public relations preferences. And the seventh being 
using academic work to proselytize for religious conversion or defection. Now, Mormon studies and apologetics falls into these categories frequently. <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, in the way of Mormon apologetics myself, I do have to just do a shout out, right? I listened to the Betty Ford episode recently, which I thought was just extremely good. I did, I need, I had to, I have to mention that getting married in the Salt Lake City Temple is not an indicator of high connections per se. It's just a waiting list. And then the position of high priest is not particularly notable. Just two minor notes I had to make on a stellar episode. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. So apologetics as a concept has an interesting history because I think some people might assume that it has <clears throat> its history in like the early Christian fathers or something, but its history is actually Greek. So apologetics comes from the ancient Greek legal system. So the categoria would be the accusation in a legal trial, and the apologia would be the defense. <clears throat> this is fundamentally like our legal system today. So Plato's apology of Socrates would be like the most famous example of what was a super common thing in the ancient world. The Apostle Paul referred to several of his writings as apologia, and at certain points, he was literally writing what would be, for all intents and purposes, like an actual legal defense. Early Roman persecution of Christians ingrained this sort of like systematic, careful legal defense of the faith as a virtue, right? So, you know, that when there's a perception that enemies of the faith are lying about your faith, then, you know, you jump right to the apologetics. And that dynamic tends to radicalize church membership, those that already believe, in favor of those doing the work of the apologetics. And the more unfair that the critics of the church are, the more I think apologetics is useful. And there are countless examples through history. I'm not going to go through the history of it necessarily, but like I think people would understand this part of it. Now, with Mormonism, this is definitely the case. In the early days of the Mormon church, we're talking Joseph Smith, Brigham Young. There's, there was all kinds of crazy lying and propaganda that was, you know, being thrown around. My, my personal favorite is that, like, Mormon missionaries had the power of hypnosis and that all of the mass conversions were due to that, which is my personal favorite. Now, there were certainly also genuine and fair critiques of the church mixed in with a bunch of lies. And that made it easy for believers to toss out the legitimate critiques, right? But the point is that apologetics as a form takes the structure of a legal defense. And what it does is it whittles down and carves out room for like reasonable doubt. And that room for reasonable doubt, you know, essentially allows for one's faith to be retained in whatever belief system it is, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, 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 not saying, yeah. All right. So, um, all right. So did you want to get into uh, Leonard, uh, Leonard uh, Arrington now, and uh, who's the mm -hmm. so-called Dean of Mormon history and how he uh, kind of gave in to the seven deadly sins in his own right? Yeah, definitely. So 
Leonard J. Arrington is not necessarily considered a quote unquote Mormon apologist, right? He's considered one of the first key, like reputable Mormon historians. Like you said, he's often called the Dean of Mormon history, which, you know, would be true in if we're talking about like modern academic standards of history that would not like make normal historians ashamed of it, right? And I think with Arrington, there's an interesting couple points that I'd like to point out. So Arrington studied at the University of Idaho. He did graduate work at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He served in World War II, and they sent him to do POW processing in Italy. And then later he performed unspecified tasks for Italy's Institute of Statistics. I am super, super interested as to what he was doing, but I could not find out exactly what he was doing. And it's important for me to point out that Arrington was initially trained, and I mean like at a graduate level, in economics, not history. And I have to point out that economics is a field entirely oriented around propaganda and polemics over hard evidence and falsifiability. And that is exactly what Arrington that training is what he took with him as he became church historian. <clears throat> so he, his first major historical work was Great Basin Kingdom and Economic History of the Latter-day Saints, 1830 to 1900. Recluse, you and I talked about this, um, or, you know, I drew some inspiration and lessons from this particular book when we did our episode on Mormon economics on your show. <clears throat> Now, the interesting thing about this book is that it was published by Harvard University Press, and it was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, the, <laughs> uh, who I think they wrote him a grant to write this book because they were funding books on economic history, which is to say they were controlling books on economic history by funding them, if you get my drift. <clears throat> Needless to say, the book did not disparaged and in, instead flattered both the United States and Mormonism, both. The book argues that Mormons were integrating theories of central planning that they somehow gleaned from the founding fathers. <laughs> and everybody wins with that kind of book, right? So in 1958 and 1959, Arrington was a Fulbright scholar. They sent him over to Italy, specifically to the University of Genoa, Genoa, where he was teaching American economics. <laughs> interesting time, interesting place to be doing that. Economics being just straight propaganda, right? So Arrington then taught at UCLA. Finally, in 1972, he was appointed head church historian, which I know that like maybe some of your listeners might not understand, but like given Mormonism's unique claims and huge amount of particular history and like downright Catholic, you know, worldview, like church historian is like a big deal, right? So church leadership granted Arrington unprecedented freedom to publish and promote church history scholarship. Prior to that, it was very tightly controlled. Now, observers have called the Arrington period, quote unquote, the Camelot era of church history scholarship. 
they even came up with a term for it, new Mormon history, which is to say like a broad trend towards less polemical and less dogmatic church history work and moving towards like a dispassionate and more somewhat humanistic rendering of church history. Now, Dr. Bushman, who is another notable Mormon historian, he <clears throat> he referred to New Mormon history as, quote, a quest for identity rather than a quest for authority. And New Mormon history includes virtually any of the Mormon scholars that anyone has actually heard about or read. So we're talking Arrington himself, Fawn Brody, Dr. Bushman, Terrell Givens, D. Michael Quinn, Juanita Brooks, pretty much anyone who's anyone in terms of like Mormon studies in that period. Now, there is a strong alternate narrative which suggests that New Mormon history actually started with Juanita Brooks publishing her study of the Mountain Meadows Massacre in 1950, which was not at all well received by the church, but that is a different debate for a different day. So this quest for identity did not last very long because there were still people for whom the quest for authority was very much still relevant. And surprise, surprise, it's church leadership. So the church was like, oh no, what did we do? And so they began to wrest control of the narrative back from the scholars and historians. And ultimately it would culminate with the transfer of the church history department from an external position to being located basically in the faculty of Brigham Young University, specifically placed into their history department. This would ultimately end up happening in 1982. So basically like subordinating it both in importance and independence. So Arrington would be released from his position as church historian. They snubbed him slightly, but they allowed him to retire without incident, but like they very much took control back. <clears throat> The point of all this is that it contextualizes the creation of farms, which would be created in 1979. So the church basically stopped funding as much research into church history. They limited access to church archives, but they encouraged third parties to make like private organizations to fund church history, which they could more tightly control. I, you know, I think there's something to this that like there was almost like a comparable phenomenon happening in the intelligence community in the late 70s, early 80s, like moving things, like privatizing things, downsizing, shrinking. And like in, in the Mormon church, late 80s into the or late 70s, early 80s, there was like a serious retrenchment going on. It paralleled the rise of like Ronald Reagan and just the general like conservative shift of America. And you saw a lot more hardline conservative church leadership gaining the upper hand. Uh, guys like Ezra Taft Benson and so forth. Uh, some people allege that some of this retrenchment in church history was due to the Mark Hoffman salamander incidents. But the timeline doesn't really work because the process started before that. I'm sure it contributed, but I don't. I think broader forces were more responsible than just Mark Hoffman. So, without doing like a whole history of church Mormon church scholarship, 
there was a famous, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a famous series of excommunications that happened in 1993. This was known as the September 6. It was six scholars and historians and writers who had allegedly published scholarly works criticizing church doctrines and leadership. The move to excommunicate these, uh, these six would be widely criticized, and people would point to that as a major sign that there was a anti-intellectual or anti-academic position taken by the church. Like people who know about Mormon history, like this is old hat. This is like well-known stuff, but like not all of your listeners might know <laughs> inside baseball from Mormon church stuff. So I thought it was important to note. <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> no, absolutely. And I mean, it was also, I mean, just in general kind of unfolding, I think at a time where, <clears throat> well, I mean, obviously, um, you know, you have like the rise of Christian fundamentalism and I mean, kind of beneath it, like dominionism and, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing, a lot of uh, mainline Protestant sects, like kind of starting in the late 70s, really, uh, and a large, you know, uh, scale, and certainly going into the early 80s with the election of Reagan. Um, and I mean, it seems like that was also kind of like a factor in what was going on in the LDS as well, because I mean, you know, there was up to that point, I mean, again, you know, Mormonism was only, as I understand it, kind of considered like nominally Christian um, by some, you know, Protestant denominations. So mm -hmm. my kind of understanding is that like kind of beginning around the late 70s, early 80s, there was, um, you know, there was a desire to like play up Jesus's role, maybe more so in the church and it's. Christian bonophilia is a little bit more than they had like in the previous decades. Um, kind of try to emphasize that it was part of the broader, you know, uh, community. Uh, you know, I mean, this was obviously around the same kind of time, you know, they're trying to, you know, fit something like Unification Church into the uh, the network as well. So, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I mean, these, these groups are showing a lot of moral uh, philosophical and spiritual flexibility, obviously, with some of this stuff. But yeah, yeah. it kind of seems like it was a time. And I mean, you know, really, to some extent, too, I mean, also with the New Age um, movement, which really did uh, enjoy, you know, kind of unparalleled access to the Reagan administration as well. I mean, I think uh, in some of the stuff like Barbara Marx Hubbard, there was also an attempt to, you know, um, maybe kind of square it a little bit with what was going on in fundamentalist circles during this time as well. So, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of. Uh, you know, kind of, I think, trying to streamline some of these uh, different spiritual disciplines during that whole era. Yeah, like in the, uh, you know, the Jimmy Carter, Carter administration, you know, they pretty much started politicizing and mobilizing, you know, just evangelical Christianity, which had been previously somewhat apolitical. And while Mormons were always kind of more political than the norm, they definitely hopped on board going into the Reagan 80s, for sure. Yep. And it's with all those cults and the religions and whatever, it's ideology trumps doctrine or faithfulness to the religious tradition every day. 
Yeah, you look at the anti-Mormons who spend a lot of time still hating on Mormonism. Like, you can tell that they're sort of like on the outs in, in the evangelical community because it's like, if they're willing to just let the Moonies in, nobody cares if the Mormons are in. So you can tell that the people most against Mormons are in the evangelical community are like viewed as cranks a little bit. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. Um, yeah. <laughs> They helped kill Prop 8 in California back in the day. So, you know, chill out, guys. Let them into the club. Listen, I was at BYU when that was going on. I remember very clearly, very clearly, they were doing like uh, phone, what do they call it? Uh, I guess calling people. They had sort of like a call center going for the California students. Phone banking. Thank you. I remember all that. That was crazy. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it was um, uh, that kind of era. And I mean, you know, also, too, this is around the same time when, I mean, there was a lot of the, you know, the effort to start bringing in, um, you know, the Zionists like proper as well. So, I mean, again, you know, if you're going to, um, you know, start uh, collaborating openly with the Jews and not just, you know, I mean, like the uh, uh, the garden variety ones, but I mean, the hardline Zionist, I mean, group, you know, you're, um, uh, you're definitely starting to um, break down some of the old alliances and stereotypes, I guess you would say, <laughs> connected with that group. So, yeah, I mean, in that context, too, I mean, it's like the Mormons and the, uh, the Moonies are even less uh, suspect, I think, than they would have been uh, without that other particular denomination also being brought into the fold. So, yeah, it was it was an interesting time for all of those folks uh, and uh, how they were starting to discover these uh, different alliances, no doubt. <laughs> those are, I guess, coinciding as well with the rise of the neocons and a lot of these, uh, you know, kind of think tanks as well so i mean there's also this sort of like underlining element playing out as well not just on the spiritual but i mean also on the political field as well but uh yeah it was uh, definitely an era where the uh tent was being widened in some senses in these circles at least you know again as long as ideology uh, was in line with uh what was needed or wanted during the reagan years which is strategically bad for Mormons if you think about it, because like you need that level of persecution to like get over if we're talking like pro wrestling and like being accepted by everyone is not. Don't get okay. Don't get me started on that. Okay. Yeah, it messes up the whole kayfabe. It sure does. Well, it was, um, like I said, it was a curious error, to put it mildly. All right, so <clears throat> let's uh, briefly touch on one of the uh, more uh, noteworthy Mormon apologists who uh, certainly generated a lot of attention for the community, and that would be this Hugh Nibley guy, I think. Uh, what is his story, Jimmy? It's a very interesting one. So, okay, first of all, I don't particularly market myself in the mormon sector right but like being a mormon it's a little bit like a small bond so like 
if you're like halfway talented at virtually anything, you can be the most talented at that field for Mormonism, right? Uh, and that's sort of the case with Hugh Nibley. I mean, it's the case for most of the celebrities that I, you know, we touched on too, right? So, okay. To tell the story of Hugh Nibley, I think it's even more interesting than with Harrington. So, to introduce the topic, in 1945, the Mormon scholar Fawn Brody published her book, No Man Knows My History which was a landmark biography of Joseph Smith. It was essentially the first serious attempt at a non-hagiographic treatment of Joseph Smith's life by like a real historian or scholar. Unfortunately, Brody was also way into like psychobiography. So the book was a little bit ripe to like rip into shreds on that basis, which leads us into Hugh Nibley, the key guy for Mormon, for modern Mormon apologetics. And it's with Hugh Nibley specifically that we see an increase in the level of sophistication of Mormon apologetics. So Hugh Nibley wrote a pamphlet in response to the Fawn Brody book. He entitled it, No Man That's Not History, which is quite funny for Mormons who are not particularly funny. Oh yeah, that's like a little... That's like a little uh, dad joke, little Ned Flanders kind of zinger. I literally have an uncle who's just like, damn, that was a sick burn. (laughs) It's like literally (laughs) not that good, but whatever. So his pamphlet really sets the tone for Mormon apologetics to come, which is to say using academic language itself to counter critiques of the church. And Hugh Nibley has been called the father of Mormon scholarly apologetics, which, again, is probably correct. So Hugh Nibley came from Mormon royalty, such as it is. His family was very well connected. His grandfather, Charles W. Nibley, managed a church lumber company in Utah. Then he combined with two other Mormon oligarchs to form a private lumber company. Hugh Nibley would actually write about how his grandfather manipulated the Homestead Act to acquire large swaths of land and then bribed government officials to keep it. So some real, like, I guess it was before the Gilded Age, but like real Gilded Age shit, basically. His grandfather also became a sugar beet millionaire, and he was tied in with all of the powerful institutions in Utah. All the stuff you and I had talked about, Recluse like the Zions Cooperative Mercantile Institution, Zions Bank, the utility companies, Western Pacific. You know, you run down the list he was involved in. Now, Hugh Nibley's grandmother was Rebecca Niebauer, who was the daughter of Alexander Niebauer, who was the first Jew to convert to Mormonism. He was a close personal friend to Joseph Smith, and he was the first dentist in Utah. So Hugh Nibley did not grow up in Utah. He grew up in Los Angeles in like the 1920s. Uh, His father was there in California, in Orange County and so forth, uh, and LA speculating in real estate. He had a bunch, yeah, Hugh Nibley had a bunch of, uh, I guess you would say notable siblings, like Hugh Nibley's uh, brother Sloan would be a screenwriter who would write for like, 
Roy Rogers movies. Uh, he also wrote for TV. So he wrote on Rawhide, Death Valley Days, Mr. Magoo, even the Adams Family. <laughs> uh, one of his other siblings was childhood friends with Ray Bradbury. So we get a little bit more of the science fiction connection there, right? And Hugh Nibley himself was childhood friends with the avant-garde composer John Cage. Just an interesting quirk, I guess. So Hugh Nibley and his siblings were gifted children. So they got private tutoring, at least in their early years. They lived in a mansion. They were part of LA High Society. Hugh Nibley would go to LA High School with, you know, and he would join the ROTC. He went on a mission, he studied at UCLA, he excelled at his studies, you know, whatever. Hugh Nibley then taught at Claremont Colleges where he actually interacted with some pretty like stellar intellectuals from Europe who came over fleeing like Nazi persecution. So we're talking about like Thomas Mann, for instance. He also interacted with Everett Dean Martin who is not well known today, but he, Martin studied propaganda and its effects. <laughs> Claremont College, uh, <clears throat> that's, man, that that's a, a school that comes up a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. both, or came up in my research once upon oh, really? a time, but it's also kind of a little bit, it's like kind of like part of the intellectual, such as it is, uh, support for a lot of the, you know, the coup type stuff we're going through right now. A lot of those guys, mm. you know, it's like kind of a think tank. You say the Constitution says whatever we want. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Back in the day, Charles Willoughby and some of the other people that would become like the wackle people in the American side uh, would be speaking it at that school. But I digress. Yeah, that does but not wait, surprise While I have me. the floor, mm -hmm. Hugh Nibley, I, I know that guy. Back in the day, years and years ago, when I used to have these these Mormon boys at my house, they'd come because, you know, it, it, it became clear I wasn't about to really convert. But, boy, we had some interesting conversations. And I didn't have Michael Quinn's book, uh, Early Mormonism and the Magical Worldview, but I did have access to some of his stuff on the Internet, including some of the illustrations or the photographs of, you know, some of that those Harry Potter accoutrements that, uh, the prophet, uh, you know, left or died with or whatever. And, you know, I'd show them their pictures of the Mars dagger and the Jupiter talisman and stuff and go, look, <laughs> literally Harry Potter. Ah. Um, but they, they turned me on to Hugh Nibley and I don't remember anything about it now. I think it had to do with saying, actually the critics of the book of Abraham are wrong. And here's why, or, or the critics of, uh, it was either the book of Abraham or Moses. It's been a long time, but it was something that was translated from uh, mummy scrolls or, or something, something Egyptian that, that a homeboy had picked up because you could just buy them by the barrel in places like Chicago. Just buying mummies, yeah. Or, or just uh, <clears throat> papyrus, you know, just scrolls, you know, just barrels of them. And I guess Joseph Smith <clears throat> must have picked some of that up. But anyway, I think it had to do with analyzing that stuff and saying, wait a minute, maybe it's true after all, but it's been a long time since I heard that name. Oh yeah. Hugh Nibley is like the guy for like fundamentally like square, like 
intellectually pretentious yet mostly vacuous like mormons who are smart enough but not smart enough to like maybe see even further which you know it's, it's not like i at one point read a huge amount of hugh nibley like uh, that's neither here nor there but <laughs> all right so hugh more nibley. than you probably want to admit to i'm sure right yeah also i was going to say regarding um claremont colleges i am not at all surprised that willoughby was there because like Mormons would have what I would call an extreme fundamentalist view of the U.S. Constitution. I would say it's like inordinately out there, even compared to the religious views, which some people might consider out there also. But like, it is like, that's a topic for another day. But like, I would say downright like fundamentalist understanding of the U.S. Constitution for sure. Yeah, like it was divinely inspired, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, yeah, exactly. Rusty Bowers, the Arizona Speaker of the House, um, <clears throat> who's on Trump's you know shit list permanently now uh, for refusing to go along with the stop the steal stuff in Arizona a couple of years ago. He, uh, you know, was talking. You probably saw this. He testified at January sixth hearing, and he was talking about the Constitution being divinely inspired, in his opinion. And I'm like, oh, you're Mormon, okay. <laughs> oh yeah so Hugh Nibley he was at that college he met some interesting people and then in World War II Hugh Nibley was the right age right time he enlists in the army at first they sent him to weather observation school then they were like okay this guy's pretty smart they sent him to officer training school then they're like okay he's quite smart so they sent him to military intelligence training. Ding, ding. Oh, okay. So he did some interesting things during the war. He compiled intelligence on German officers. He also accompanied the 101st Airborne landing on Utah Beach during D-Day. He saw Dhaka concentration camp uh, shortly after it was liberated. It's funny because Mormons like to emphasize that he saw combat. But I tend to think that the military intelligence thing is vastly more important and understudied. And I always like to, when I'm on the farm, right, I always like to uh, point out when, if you happen to like have a neighbor or a friend that's Mormon, or, you know, maybe you have some Mormon listeners too, like Hugh Nibley being military intelligence is not particularly well-known, I would point that out. <clears throat> so Hugh Nibley got out of the army, and that's when he wrote that response to Fawn Brody's Joseph Smith biography. The pamphlet greatly impressed church leadership, so they were like, hey, let's do business. Long story short, Hugh Nibley becomes a professor of humanities at Brigham Young University. Now, speaking personally, Mormons love Hugh Nibley because he is aggressive in his defense of the church. He can be slightly funny and a guy that's even slightly funny uh, really gets over with Mormons because Mormons are not particularly funny. Hugh Nibley is also humanistic. He's not a total dumbass, which surprise, surprise, a lot of church leadership and just church like 
celebrities can often be very stupid. Uh, Hugh Nibley is very well read. He's not super dogmatic like a lot of Mormon thinkers. He was even liberal, gasped, <laughs> even politically. Like Hugh Nibley famously opposed the Vietnam War. And to my knowledge, he was virtually the only like prominent Mormon to do so, which was <laughs> depressing and uh, very telling, I think, on Mormons, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so Hugh Nibley was, I would definitely say he was brilliant, but he used his gifts in service of Mormonism and Mormon apologetics. No one would argue that he was skilled at tearing apart critics of Mormonism. Uh, he once wrote a, a humorous piece called How to Write an Anti-Mormon Book, a Handbook for Beginners, which is like super well written, but it's you know, and I read it years ago and I reread it recently. And it is, it kind of reminds me of like if Rush Limbaugh were like smart, basically. Um, it still has that kind of tone, talk radio, basically. Uh, but the majority of his work was very much academic. Uh, but he used tools from his field, which was not history, actually, it was comparative literature. Uh, to do Mormon apologetics. He could make short work of a sloppy critic of Mormonism. The Tanners, uh, I think Gerald and Sandra Tanner, the critics of the church that I personally have the most respect for, uh, they put out work that would argue that Hugh Nibley would frequently tweak or modify his quotes and evidence to make it more impactful, but he generally didn't lie or make things up, which is like the best you can say about it, I, I suppose. So my contention, though, the reason why we're talking about Hugh Nibley is that him being military intelligence coincides with a seismic shift in the sophistication of Mormon apologetics, and that that is not an accident or a coincidence. Hugh Nibley did not work directly in counterintelligence or psychological warfare, as far as we know, but he would not have been unaware of the concepts. And I think that the Mormon church exhibited a huge, like a greater degree of awareness to control the narrative, control the source of information, put out countervailing narratives, all of which would align with someone who was literally trained in military intelligence, which Unibly was. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention that towards the end of his life, we're talking like in his 90s, Hugh Nibley was, okay, Hugh Nibley's daughter alleged that he that he sexually abused her from the ages of five to eight. Uh, his daughter, Martha Beck, she alleged that Hugh Nibley would sexually abuse her while chanting Egyptian prayers and dressed in Egyptian garb. Uh, she suggested that it was some kind of imitation or inversion of the biblical sacrifice story of Abraham and Isaac. Now, for what it's worth, none of her siblings believe her, and they believe that this was a falsely implanted memory. And several point out that Martha Beck was experimenting with self-hypnosis, and they think that she basically made it up. <clears throat> On the flip side, the Nibley family hired a shrink and lawyer associated with the False Memory Syndrome Foundation to defend them. So... I still don't really know what to make of the allegations uh, one way or the other. Uh, further, Martha Beck actually alleged that Hugh Nibley was sexually abused by his mother, 
She also makes some pretty bold claims that the church wiretapped her and gang stalked her, uh, both of which maybe are true. Uh, she says that the church that church leadership runs a death squad, which is probably not true. Not the death squad part anyway. They do definitely spy on dissenters. So that's what I got on you, Nebby. All right, are you uh, ready to delve into uh, farms proper at this point, sir? I sure am. <clears throat> All right, so farms stands for the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. That's the acronym, right? So like I said, it was founded in 1979. Initially, it was a nonprofit that was not directly affiliated with the Mormon church. Uh, it was started with like a donation by a, <laughs> a Southern California lawyer Mormon named John W. Welch. Uh, farms would eventually be folded into BYU in 1997, which means from 1997 on, it would be formally part of like the school that the church runs. So Welch, well, who's this guy, right? This big city lawyer. Welch went to BYU, then he went to Oxford as a Woodrow Wilson fellow. He went to law school at Duke University. He worked at the law firm O'Melveny and Myers, which is a major international law firm listed on like the A-list of law firms. It's one of the highest paying law firms in the country. I had to look this up. Their starting associate base salary is $215,000 a year. <laughs> so you see how if you would have you know, gotten very far, he would have definitely had starting a private think tank money, right? <laughs> that is a lot. Yeah. If you would have made partner, yeah, we're talking like easy millions and so forth. So there's a long list of federal judges and other like cabinet positions staffed by former O'Melveny and Myers lawyers. But either way, so Welch basically becomes a professor at the BYU Law School. He starts farms, he runs it. He supposedly discovered some particular thing in the Book of Mormon and that got him interested in Mormon studies, right? But my point is this farms like brings us full circle back to the concept of apologetics as a discipline fundamentally informed by like the legal system modern mormon apologetics uses legal tactics to create room in the mind of believers for faith to still have space what's that term reasonable doubt farms is all about creating reasonable doubt and i think that you see catholics having such a crucial role in like the judicial system in the United States and on the Supreme Court for very similar reasons that like Mormons are in, you know, that there are so many freaking Mormon lawyers, basically. Now, farms attempts to meet peer reviewed academic standards, they largely succeed in like the narrow sense. Uh, there was a much discussed report from the Evangelical Theological Society that argued that farm scholarship meant that Mormons were now winning the apologetics battle over Mormonism. 
And there's also some sketchy Italian professor who runs like an anti-cult think tank who concluded the same thing. On the flip side, it is still decidedly apologetics. So it is still kind of rough. So like there's a molecular biologist whose work was used by farms. You know, the eternal like Native American DNA question, basically, <laughs> whether they're in any way you know, Jews or Israelis or whether, <laughs> whether they're not, right? And so this biologist, he said that farms exists only to prop up faith in the Book of Mormon and that its work stretches the bounds of credibility to the breaking point on almost every critical issue, which is not necessarily untrue. <laughs> uh, farms has been accused of doing ad hominem attacks, which is definitely true. Uh, I mean, Mormons, Mormon apologists love to do ad hominem attacks, period. So like when we were talking about Martha Beck, the daughter of Hugh Nibley, I can't tell you how many articles I read that cited her being a lesbian as proof that she made up claims against her father. So that's the sort of like ad hominem stuff I'm talking about. So farms material itself is not super interesting like i did read it growing up but i technically read a related thing byu studies i read their publications more most of the farm stuff is focused on the book of mormon the you know book of abraham book of moses and so forth and i should point out that farms is now defunct or rather they were folded into byu they changed their name and now it's like a different thing basically <clears throat> I don't have that much to say about the actual content of the work. I'm just like not super invested in defending it or wading through it to you know, find more salient points. I would point out that one of the other board members for farms, William J. Hamlin, no, not the Hamlin that was coming up in all that satanic stuff. Uh, this guy worked for the Department of Defense before he ended up on BYU faculty, which again, sort of points to some of what I'm talking about. All of this is to say that Mormon apologetics uses legal tactics and strategies, <clears throat> also uses similar tactics from comparative literature and from economics. That, you know, my point is that the men who invented the field were not just obviously deeply invested in the Mormon project, but they specifically had funding from the church. They had, you know, money from groups like the Rockefeller Foundation. Like we pointed out, they had ties to places like the Claremont College. These same men received training from either, you know, the academy or literally the U.S. military. And they utilized what are fundamentally lessons from military intelligence and psychological warfare to carry out information warfare, information control operations. And if we're talking about competing notions of America's past, like that's it right there. The farm stuff is about propping up the church itself, which the church itself projects a competing notion of America's past. Farms is not for outsiders, it's for believers. And it does work on a certain level, like we're talking information warfare. Yeah, that's a very chilling prospect, Jimmy, and very well said, but uh, I think you're definitely hitting the nail on the head with that and its actual purpose. And 
I mean, it is certainly very telling that there are so many intelligence connected personnel or, you know, just DOD connected personnel who seem to show up in um, this whole saga. And again, a lot of the same kinds of colleges and scholarships and all this other stuff that we keep seeing over and over again in these same groups. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, a lot of this is just par for the course with a lot of the other stuff that we've looked at over the course of this series. So on that note, Keith, tell us a bit about Dagobert's Revenge. What is its origin story? Whoa, we're changing topics. We're changing topics in a big way. Mio. <laughs> All right. So competing notions. Um, <clears throat> uh, maybe if <clears throat> at competing notions of America's past. And also I was talking earlier about how these silent uh, stones, they're kind of like a talisman waiting for somebody else to imbue it with new meaning. So the Kensington runestone, you know, has gone through a couple of cycles of, of being reinterpreted. And we talked about that in the last, in the last episode. Um, but it, it, it the, the, like if, if the experiment, the experiment should be repeatable. So let's talk about like a completely different, you know, example of the same thing, the Rene Le Chateau mystery and the Holy blood, Holy grail crap, all that, that whole milieu, that whole meme, whatever. Uh, once again, cringe time, you know, when I was in my early twenties, I <clears throat> met up with some, with some dudes in Detroit that were all into golden dawn and occultism and stuff and i really would i really didn't kind of get down with a lot of it but i got a copy of holy blood holy grail from the guy and the serpent's egg the dead can dance album neither of which i gave back to him uh, i'm sorry i don't even remember his name uh probably good, that, for probably good for me uh i don't know anyway uh i read i read that book and i was like 20 right so it's like I'm sure if I went back and read it today, so much more of it would make more sense. I didn't know a damn thing. But, you know, the gist of it is uh, Jesus survived the crucifixion, actually was married to Mary Magdalene, fled the Holy Land with her to the south of France, <clears throat> where she bore him sons. And his bloodline, the line of David, lives on to this day in France. Can I, and can I, bloodline has been, here? yes, please, please, you, you go ahead. Not all Mormons believe this. However, there is a contingent that sort of whispers occasionally that Joseph Smith had ties to the Merovingian bloodlines. It's not like a normal Mormon belief, but like you'll hear it sometimes. I'm going to take a guess uh, that that connection was probably made after the Holy Blood, Holy Grail book came out, not before. Almost certainly. Yeah. Because we didn't even know about it then. There's all this extra stuff we can graft onto our thing, right? So there's a secret society called the Priory of Sion that's been protecting this bloodline, which is, in fact, the Holy Grail itself. And one day... They'll unveil it, and it's kind of this millennial kind of apocalyptic thing. And uh, he'll be, you know, his heir will ascend the throne and become king, probably of a united Europe. 
Like if you go back and, you know, the second one of those two books, the, the, there was the Holy Blood, Holy Grail, the Messianic Legacy. And then it kind of devolved from there into, man, we got to write more books because this is great. But those first two, oh, the Temple and the Lodge was a good one. But it's kind of downhill from there, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, so the Messianic Legacy book um, kind of talks about the whole Holy, Holy Grail mythos and how they became skeptical of it and started seeing it as a they never said Le Cercle, but they were they were talking right around it. They probably didn't know the word, but I mean, it was just like a it's kind of like a European psychological warfare, deep state sort of notion, you know, for like a united Europe. And the king is, of course, going to be Catholic. He's going to be French he's going to be descended from the Knights Templar. And by God, Jesus Christ and King David himself, what greater, uh, you know, conferral of divine right and legitimacy could you possibly pick to top? descended from king david right so uh in the messianic legacy they actually talk about the knights of malta being involved in this and peter grace and <laughs> they, i think they mentioned julius Savola in there they mentioned the european economic community and the, the eu this book was written in the 80s this all is relevant by the way i'm gonna i'm gonna get to the topic at hand uh dagobert's revenge okay um it, it, it was uh, started really by Tracy Twyman and uh, in the 90s, late 90s. And there are numerous interviews that you can listen to with her where she kind of recapit recapitulates the story over and over again, talking about how it all happened. Uh, she doesn't mention Boyd Rice, with whom she was uh, a partner in those efforts. I'll get to him in a minute, I guess. Uh, but she kind of started that magazine in the late 90s really when she, initially the initial pulse of her doing this stuff was uh like when she was 18 and she'd kind of started the magazine and it didn't quite get going but then it, it got going like a little later but uh for real and it was kind of this I mean, she literally called it a magic spell uh she wanted to be uh, in contact with the secret chiefs, I guess you didn't call them that, but you know, the elites, uh, the occult elites. And she was studying the heck out of all that stuff at a very young age and sort of gave herself the power to throw out symbols and manipulate them and whatever, and spend some good yarns so as to attract the attention of these elites that she wanted to get in touch with and be part of. And she talks about in her history of Dagobert's Revenge, which you can find on archive.org because so much has been scrubbed. Uh, you know, she she talks about how from a young age, she basically felt like people generally can't handle their own freedom, their own responsibility. And it's best if they are ruled over by elite enlightened ones. Um, and so she was a monarchist, like through and through, never really re recanted that. Uh, thing Dagobert's Revenge was the magazine the, the tagline was uh, music magic and monarchy literally and there was all kinds of occult writing in there you know st uh, new speculations back to the the holy blood holy grail stuff her her idea was she took the Renée Le Chateau mythos she had just read that book holy blood holy grail right before she started the magazine and it blew her mind. 
And so she took the grail mythos as reinterpreted by the Holy Blood, Holy Grail book and reinterpreted it again. And the gist of it is it's a, well, David had to get his royalty, his royal blood from somewhere. It it must've predated him. It certainly predated Jesus. So it goes all the way back to antediluvian before the flood times and Atlantis or, or Mesopotamia, you know, the Anunnaki, the watchers, all that Enochian, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, she's like the ancient name for King was Khan. And it sounds kind of like Cain and Cain was the first King. You know, it isn't talked about in the Bible, but the secret tradition says that he was. And, um, so, so, uh, the devil or Cain and Abel, and all these guys, and Jesus, of course, as well, they all are descended from the same royal bloodline that predates all of them and is older than the Hebrew religion. And, of course, this is, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of blasphemous. It's kind of a really weird take. You know, it's like that whole, like, Jesus and Satan are brothers kind of, you know, notion. Um so and and the and the grail of course is that pre-diluvian bloodline it's not just simply king david it's all the way back to atlantis and all that kind of stuff right and it's a radical reinterpretation of all that stuff along with her is uh, a couple other people there's boyd rice he was a uh, was kind of an inheritor of the church of satan anton lavey he was good friends with them if that's possible, uh, you know, he was a Satanist. I mean, if you go, if you go look at a uh, black sun by Nicholas Goodrick Clark, you can read about him. It's just one place. He's a noise and industrial musician. And uh, he was part of this stuff too. And he had a lot of, apparently uh, some had said that he had like ties to, you know, white supremacy movements, Nazis and all this kind of stuff, stuff. And certainly he had like Nazi memorabilia and stuff in his house. And, you know, he's a Nazi. Okay. Or he's doing it for the irony or the coolness or the transgressiveness of it. And those nuances don't freaking matter. <laughs> if if I walk into your house and you got a big swastika flag on there, I only have a very narrow band of things I'm going to interpret this as. Right. So you're doing it for the lulls. I don't care. Anyway. Um, so he's part of this whole thing and the writings, uh, in, in the thing are, you know, a lot of them are pretty dark and, and Boyd Rice's stuff. I remember being kind of in the vampiric, you know, talking about Royal blood ceremonies in ancient Mesopotamia on top of a ziggurat with human sacrifices and tantric weirdness and it's been a been you know over 20 years or about 20 years since i read any of this stuff but like you know certain things stick out for me a little a little box on the side of the text saying the meek shall inherit nothing um it was just a cursed magazine but i i I had previously been into all of that merovingian mythos stuff so i was you know that hooked me in but I was also into all kinds of theosophy and, and, you know, ancient speculations about all that same stuff. You know, Columbus was last. 
maybe the history of the ancient world isn't what we've been told it is, you know, cultic milieu kind of, I don't want to believe what they want me to believe kind of attitude, which you can replicate across all kinds of fields. Right. Um, I was into it. I was into it. Um, they had, they had a website. I was reading the website. This was in the days that I was really into all that stuff. I was reading the, the gray logic cult review, Jonathan Sellers, and the brother blue archives talking about how, you know, ceremonial magic and ufology are really ufology is just an update to what used to be called ceremonial magic. It was like a whole archive, but they, I think they went after the wrong people and they got taken down. The point is this was the cultic milieu that I was kind of into at the time. So it was really attractive. And, and I guess, yeah, the, that's, that's kind of the history of it. Uh oh, somebody's home. That was kind of the history of it, but where it goes from there, I don't know, Recluse, was that enough or did I miss something? No, 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 you're good, you're good, you're good. Uh, did you want to add anything to like when you first started to encounter this stuff? Oh, yeah, that was at the Crescent Smoke Shop in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> Sometime in like 02. Uh, I went in there and got one edition and then I just was like hooked and I'd go back, you know, a few weeks later. No, we don't have it. No, we don't have it. A couple months later, the next edition comes out. And it turned out to be the last um, from what I've read now, you know, now I understand that's about the time that the whole thing was breaking up, um, falling out Boyd Rice and Tracy Twyman. She wrote an open letter to Boyd Rice where she just basically said, you know, you're high school dropout, you're barely literate and you're drunk all the time. And you took credit for all my stuff. And me and my husband basically turned into your little slaves. and you took credit for our work and you stole our work and screw you, you know? Um, so they had created this, uh, as another euphemism for the Holy grail, which is the stone that fell to earth. So they created this secret society in service of the grail called the Ordo Lapsit Extilist stone that fell to earth, order the stone fell to earth. And that was sort of breaking up at the time, uh, as well. So the magazine shuttered and I only got two editions of it and it was, you know, it sucked because I was like, I want more. And I couldn't find the, I couldn't afford the back issues online. But a couple of years later, they put out the best of Dagobert's Revenge and it's a book called the Merovingian Mythos. And if you want to read all that, including interviews with Danny Carey from Tool, Marilyn Manson, there's an interview with Peter Lavenda. They put the, uh, the Nazi poster uh, that Lavenda used for the cover of his Unholy Alliance book. They did an interview with Peter Lavenda, right? Uh, Tracy Twyman, she's got to be like 20 years old, maybe 22 years old. And she's interviewing Peter Lavenda about Nazi occultism. And they decided to just, you know, make the whole issue that the, to make Nazi occultism the theme of the entire issue, right? So big, big spread Peter Lavenda interview. And they used his book cover as the cover for the newsstand copy of Dagobert's Revenge. And of course, it's, you know, if you've ever seen the cover of that, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a picture of Hitler uh, being Hitler, a bunch of people marching behind him. And it just says unholy alliance. And uh, <laughs> I want to say something else about this because I went on a, a dive, right? 
just kind of looking at looking at YouTube videos and listening to them. And I'm not proud. I'm kind of anti YouTube, but you know, whatever. Uh, and hearing all these interviews, I don't know if you recluse, you remember we were on Eric Luke's show, was talking about, you know, these Satanist guys and disclosure guys and skinhead guys would go on like Donahue and Geraldo back in the 80s, Sally Jesse. And, you know, it's like they demagogue their audiences into booing him. Maybe, maybe Geraldo gets his nose broken with a chair. But at the end of the day, they're platforming these guys, right? And, and, and letting them make their case on daytime, primetime TV, you know? And it was, you know, I was a kid watching that stuff. But looking back at it now, it's pretty ham-fisted pro wrestling kayfabe stuff. Here's somebody for you to hate. And tell us, tell us why you think whites are the master race or whatever, you know. And uh, I think Boyd Rice might have been one of those guys that was on TV back then. Uh, it's but, like structured so that you end up rooting for the heel, like in most pro wrestling, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it's like a bat signal. You know? Uh, Jello Biafra in his, uh, his song, Last Scream of the Missing Neighbors, you know, he said, neo-Nazi boot boys that the cops never seem to arrest, prowl the neighborhood and baseball bats. Why do they get so much press? <laughs> anyway, uh, I am on topic here. It doesn't sound like it, but I'll, 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 you know, I'm the king of long stories. So hold on. I got you. So, so much of Tracy's stuff's been scrubbed off the web. So you can find this stuff with, with YouTube when it's somebody else's show. So there's an old video of this guy. Have y'all ever heard of a guy named Bob Larson? No. He's like a, he's like, okay, he's like a, He's like a Christian uh, TV preacher guy or radio preacher that was really big in pioneering or pushing the memes of, of spiritual warfare. I know y'all know what that means. Yeah, you know, you had David Metcalf on your show, Recluse. He'd tell y'all about what that means, right? And uh, there's an interview in the 90s with Bob Larson, this radio preacher, and he's got Boyd Rice and Tracy Twyman on. And they've got a new magazine, and Bob Larson's going to give them a platform to talk about. And, you know, Boyd Rice was on Bob Larson's show last year, pimping his new book. No. And and here's dude giving him a a whole, you know, time to have a nice conversation. And they talked about being friends and, you know, and how all of their other friends look at him weird because he's friends with a Satanist. And I'm friends with 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 a preacher, you know. But he's interviewing Twyman and Boyd Rice. See, I'm back on track. Back in the late 90s. And uh, here's Tracy talking about this whole grail thing and, and this, uh, this bloodline business that goes back to before the flood. And I'm bringing this up partly for all the other reasons of rambling. But also, going back to the holy blood, holy grail thing as Le Circle Propaganda or the Priory of Scion, more to the point, not necessarily the books about it, but, um, you know, it was tied up in this, the kind of stuff you could read about in Rogue Agents, uh, David Teacher's book, you know, about efforts to unite Europe into a world power after World War II. This was part of the mission 
of the Bilderbergers and Le Cercle and just a lot of people in Europe elites that, you know, we're not going to be able to compete unless we become one super state, one big market that can compete toe to toe with the U.S. and whoever else. Right. So she's on this radio show. And so is Rice. They're really pushing this like this, this, this ancient bloodline. When these kings are revealed and they, they take back over Europe, you're going to see a united Europe. You know, it's going to bring together all the royal families of Europe and kind of like some golden age kind of thing. But, you know, you know, 30, whatever years later, knowing about a circle, it's like very on brand, but it's packaged in this satanic, you know, seed serpent seed weird like vaguely nazi aesthetic and the people that are pushing it are like serious occultists and it was just it was just really bizarre uh to to listen to this interview but there are interviews out there where you can hear the basic thesis of that whole magazine as told by twyman um and she just lays it out after you listen to three or four of them you kind of feel like you you get it right but it's not a, it's not some hidden thing, I guess. I don't know if that's enough extra thoughts about it, but. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, is, before we wrap up here, do you have anything to add on the uh, legacy proper of Dagobarts or St. Tracy in your estimation, Keith? Oh man. Okay. So I knew about all that. I told you, I read it. I was into it, blah, blah, blah. And then like, I, uh, you know, I just forgot about it. I still had those two magazines, the last two that they published, I believe. I actually gave them to Sam when we, when we met earlier this year in Cincinnati, like get him out of my house, you know, but I, then almost 20 years goes by 15 and I've not thought about this lady in years. And here's her name coming up because it's her obituary. And the, the odd thing about her, you know, it being her obituary is like the, the way it's being characterized, the way people are talking about, it, you know? Uh, and oh, and yeah. so basically it was like, she was like this Pizzagate researcher kind of thing, you know, human trafficking, Hollywood kind of stuff. And she got, you know, Seth riched by the deep state or something because she was too close to the truth. And it really just kind of gave me whiplash. Like, wait a minute, that lady, you know, is is now this. And that's how she went out. It was like. I don't understand. Uh, I, I went back and uh, like I said, I listened to all the interviews where I could find and there's some tapes or a like a dead man switch thing that she did. Like if I die, this is about Isaac Cappy and gang stalking and stuff. And you can put it out after I'm dead. And there was some drama that happened around with it, with uh, the higher side chats. And there was like a whole statement from Greg Carlwood and, you know, at the time he's, you know, he sounded really broken up about it and, and really, you know, sincere, obviously. Um, about just what it, like a it was just a bad situation and of course there's the speculation will never end it's one is take your pick she was suicided she suicided herself or she's kicking it with jim morrison and like tangiers or something you know 
and, and escaped. Right. And, you know, they'll never be the, the, the arguments about it or whatever will probably never end. Um, and a lot of her stuff is gone, but what you can still find are her books, you know, like one of her last books was a whole thing about Baphomet. She wrote, like wrote a whole book about him, uh, you know, writing books about the Holy blood, Holy grail stuff, wrote a book with Nicholas DeVore, the vampire guy with his dragon fort thing. I don't know if you guys knew about all that. It's kind of like, it's like the kind of shit that like Graham Hancock is like a gateway drug to. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but that, that's okay. Uh, uh, she would be doing these interviews, talking about all this stuff, talking about her journey, not mentioning Boyd Rice at all, but she would also talk about how uh, she's using a Ouija board to talk to Baphomet and Kane and Jean Cocteau, the French poet and painter and whatever. And uh, getting messages channeled from beyond the grave from these guys. And it's kind of the inspiration. It's not, it's not like they're dictating her books or anything, but they're definitely the, her research assistants, if you will. And so a lot of the substance of these interviews, she's just talking about, and Cain then, you know, and then Cain told us that, you know, Jesus wasn't really crucified. And he, here's how he got Judas Iscariot to take the fall for him. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. She said that was Baphomet that told her that Judas was put in place of Jesus and was crucified instead of Jesus. And it's like, so what? You're literally on a Ouija board, you know, and you're playing the telephone game with a guy on a radio show about how uh, Baphomet told you the real story of what happened with Jesus' crucifixion. Why, why, you know, how come there's so many interviews of that? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> would, would, would I be back on your show, bro? If, if, if I was talking some shit like that, like it's, it's crazy, you know? Um, Didn't so she uh, get kicked off of coast to coast AM? I think I remember her saying that. I, I think so. Yeah. But it, it, you know, and then the last few years of her life, she's on these podcasts talking about Isaac Cappy stuff and like analyzing Macaulay Calkins tweets and stuff, you know, it, it was just really weird. But if you go to amazon.com, you know, that website uh, and just type her name in and look at the titles of the books, you know, this is what survives her, you know, and, and and when I was looking into all this stuff, I see like comments on blog. I see there's some blog posts that have been written about this when she died and what it meant. And uh, there seemed to be a real need in some of the comment sections to, 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 to how do we make our peace with this? Well, yes, maybe uh, Tracy did do all that stuff and like, you know, was talking to Kane on a Ouija board like a full 10, 12 years after Dagobert's Revenge was done and she was supposedly done with all those Satan guys. Okay, here's like a half-channeled book about Baphomet coming out in like 2014, 2015. It's a long way from Dagobert's Revenge at that point, right? But still, that's the, that's the shtick and she's going online talking about it. So how is it that 
you know, okay. So the blog comments are talking about like, I, you know, I think she had a conversion experience at the end of her life. I think she actually, she never said that. I looked, I looked and I heard, you know, I read people saying, well, in our private conversations, she was telling me she definitely prayed and whatever. And like, like, I don't care. Okay. She, she, she doesn't owe anybody anything. This lady was, I believe. Okay. I mean, you're 18, 19 years old and hanging out with like the heir to the church of Satan. How's that not going to fuck you up, man? You know? So she's, I mean, there's pictures of her like an early 20s standing next to like just some crazy, like Satan people, you know, and she's just very smart, wild eyed, precocious gal from Kansas city. Who's like in over her head with these, these guys, you know, she said, Boyd Rice stole her material. She said there was a book called the Da Vinci code decoded that she said she had at least, at least she said I was in on that scam, but she said Peter Lavenda stole her material for a book called papal magic. Hmm. And there's a website you can find on archive.org that talks about all this stuff. And it's got like copies of her emails and stuff that she sent to Harper Collins pitching him on the book at the recommendation of Peter Lavenda. And then he puts out this book when it was, she got taken advantage of by a lot of people. You know, she had a, a Rene Le Chateau documentary that she was going to do with Boyd Rice. And he like kind of tried to cut her out of it at the last minute. She said, you know, so all these people wanted to use her, you know, and take credit for her genius. And she had like a whole lifetime of that, you know, and it sucks. So anyway, I don't, I don't know that I fault this person. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be like compassionate or whatever, but like the legacy that this person left behind is one of somebody that was into some super dark shit and was talking to devils with a Ouija board and writing about how Cain and Jesus uh, and the devil all shared the same bloodline and monarchy's good. And, but you do like a star turn the last couple of years of your life and you jump on the Pizzagate thing. And then you die, and then you're like a martyr to the cause. What, you don't think that the esoteric Satanist was telling the truth about child sacrifices? I think he was. <laughs> Whoever you're talking about, you know, they'll tell you what they're about. It's yeah. just, I don't understand the alchemy or whatever you call it in people's heads where it's like, you know, this person's going to be, oh, it's another martyr to the deep state. Like, no, no, this, this is a special case. I don't think it fits into that neat little category. And given the life that she had and how she got screwed and probably was like fracking her own brain doing occult stuff, which is, you know, bad for your brain a lot of times and, and doing it as an avocation and like almost like a source of income. You know, it's like part of your mystique. It's part of your brand. It's part of the stories that go into your books. You know, it'll take a toll on you, man. You know, <laughs> especially after 20 years or whatever of doing it. it. Anyway, Tracy Twyman, uh, rest in peace, man. But, but my God, if I come on, if I come on and say, Hey, you know, the devil told me through my week, like, whoa, whoa, just stop me. Just stop me. I'll thank you. Well, that was a good note to end things on, Keith. And again, thank you very much for sharing your insights on that, man. 
Uh, certainly, it's uh, it's a difficult subject to broach with Tracy, and I mean, what she meant, obviously, I mean, a lot of people, I think, still struggle with what she meant to them, um, you know, and they're definitely conflicting schools of thought on how much she uh, actually converted towards the end of her life, whether or not you it know, was anyone, I mean, all you, that good stuff. You know, I, I, I will say this, like, in a, in a separate conversation, we were talking, I think I was talking with uh somebody that knows a lot about adam parfrey and we're talking about adam parfrey and i basically was like well i don't really know a whole lot about adam parfrey because i didn't uh but i do have apocalypse culture over here and then you open it up and there's hawking bay and boyd rice and hitler and uh you know i think maybe john zerzan and maybe charles you know just a bunch of like cursed psychic damage you know kind of text in there including some just flat out nazi stuff and apparently that guy in feral house they published a lot of that stuff and I think there might be, you know, there's some, I've, I've read places that maybe Adam Parfrey was kind of taken advantage of by people that wanted to use his genius and his work ethic and his infrastructure, his publishing company, you know, as their own platform. And so they, you know, maybe, maybe use the guy or whatever. And I think that's kind of similar to the Tracy thing, at least to hear her tell it stuff I found today. But like, you if you don't know Adam Parfrey, you pull off Apocalypse Culture off the shelf at some dude's house, and you don't know what it is, and you look at it, and you're like, well, <laughs> I've just learned a lot about this guy. Who's the editor? Okay, this guy. Okay. You know, and it doesn't matter if there's some nuance there. It doesn't matter if, well, there's more to the story. You know, it's complicated. It's like, no, it's not, man. Look at the table of contents. You know, it's the same kind of thing. Go to Amazon and look at, this is the literary legacy. And it's like satanic. <laughs> There's books they, about Lovecraft. Feral House know. published like child porn, man. It's like, how much irony could you possibly have with it? Yeah, right. Good Lord. Anyway, it kind of just reminded me of that a little bit. But at the end of the day, it's like the legacy, the work that you leave behind. Now that all this stuff is being scrubbed off the internet, as you said, recluse, uh, what's going to be left? other people's interviews that you can't take off the internet if you don't have control of them and a whole Amazon page with all these books about Baphomet and the Lovecraftian mythos and, you know, the sacred well, in fairness, They're trying to price the books on Amazon out of the range of people. And I mean, I'm sure the Kindles are going to go down like eventually when the, um, you know, probably the copyright is up or something. But I mean, already that one, like Goosefer or whatever it's called, I mean, it's almost impossible to find like a physical copy of. Genuflect. Genuflect. That yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so the process has begun. And I mean, it'll, it'll take a little longer, though, for the physical ones. I mean, assuming that this isn't just, you know, a Streisand, um, you know, effort. You know, for, for, for people that, I mean, that I, I'm probably going to have offended at least a couple people that have, uh, you know, I even called John Brisson this morning. I'm like, look, man, I heard you talk about Tracy, you know, did she ever, ever repent or recant or any kind of statement or any indication that she was like, nah, I'm not into any of that anymore. You know, I mean, he's like, no, I used to think that, but I've never seen anything. So it's like, forget Tracy. Tracy doesn't know anybody's shit. Okay. But if you are like a person on the internet and you just sort of swallowed this uh, sort of dead man switch narrative, you know, it's, there's an object lesson here about maybe being careful about what you're stepping in. Cause I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I can just leave it at, leave it at that, I guess. Yeah. Just, 
for somebody that went into a Rib Van Winkle time capsule, uh, thinking of Tracy this one way, and then like 20 years later, I'm like, oh, she died. Oh, she was like, you know, one of the, one of these, you know what I mean? It was just, uh, it was like, how did, what was the path to get from here to there? Yeah, it's crazy. Mean, she definitely went through a lot of different transitions over the course of her career. And I mean, it's, yeah, it, it, it raises more questions than it answers to put mildly. I mean, pretty well, much I'll tell you the conclusion, life. the conclusion I came to the last couple of days, finding this stuff on archive.org and reading her letters, talking about how this guy and that guy, Nicholas DeVore was a, a drunk and narcissist and, you know, that was really bad being involved with him and all these people stole her work. And she probably had a couple of like real bestsellers in her. She said in one of her essays, I'm not going to say that Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, you know, guy owes me royalties. But, you know, Dagobert's Revenge was up and running and really having a profound influence. The spell, she said, the spell we cast. Let me say that again. The spell we cast on Western civilization was out and running around in the wild by the time the da vinci code came out she probably could have done if these people would have gotten out of her way she probably could have rode that wave and had a bestseller or two and retired off that shit like jk rowling style you know yeah but it, it wasn't to be so I'm, I'm just guessing that maybe you know it was like all right well we're doing pizzagate stuff now so i guess i better do that you know yeah and I mean, I don't it, know. You know if, I don't know if that's true. I just it's just speculation. No, I mean, it's, it's as good as any. I mean, I think explanation. I mean, certainly with what. You know, I mean, she had to stay current. I mean, she had to, you know, earn a living. And I mean, that's kind of what happens, I think, sometimes. Um, you know, I mean, there is a lot of mercenary activity in this field. It's a sad fact. Podcast oh, wars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that note, I guess we will sign off for now. Um, again, you know, I want to thank you guys so much for doing this. Uh, it's been a great series. I mean, I hope you guys have enjoyed it as much as we have and uh, have gleaned a new perspective on the uh, history of this country from it and uh, some of the different groups they have competed. Definitely urge you guys to check this out in conjunction, too, with the Society of Cincinnati series I've been doing on the Patreon because, I mean, it does tie into a lot of this and... Uh, gives you a pretty interesting overview of, I mean, you know, going back, how the founding fathers themselves were trying to shape uh, the visions, you know, essentially for what the country would become. Now we can kind of see different groups try to take some of the things they were doing and reinvent the history that they had left behind. So it's very interesting to see all this has played out over the years. So on that note, and as a sign off, and as always, I thank you guys for listening. Good night. Good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the go Jay. We were ready. My people there, they feeling me. Down low, skin roll. More characters than Stephen King. To quarry y'all, I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up, stuck down in this stick. Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what. Put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down, turn around, do it for me, stick it out. Say one, two, three, turn and mo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone.
Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Forget about your maple. 